Chapter Twelve of Varney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Varney the Vampire, Volume One, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter Twelve. Charles Holland's sad feelings. The portrait. The occurrence of the night at the hall. Charles Holland wished to be alone, if ever any human being had wished fervently to be so. His thoughts were most fearfully oppressive. The communication that had been made to him by Henry Bannerworth had about it too many strange, confirmatory circumstances to enable him to treat it, in his own mind, with the disrespect that some mere freak of a distracted and weak imagination would, most probably, receive from him. He had found Flora in a state of excitement which could arise only from some such terrible cause as had been mentioned by her brother, and then he was, from an occurrence which certainly never could have entered into his calculations, asked to forego the bright dream of happiness which he had held so long and so rapturously to his heart. How truly he found the course of true love ran not smooth, and yet how little would any one have suspected that from such a cause as that which now oppressed his mind any obstruction would arise. Flora might have been fickle and false. He might have seen some other fair face which might have enchained his fancy and woven for him a new heart's chain. Death might have stepped between him and the realization of his fondest hopes. Loss of fortune might have made love cruel, which would have yoked to its distresses a young and beautiful girl reared in the lap of luxury, and who was not, even by those who loved her, suffered to feel, even in later years, any of the pinching necessities of the family. All these things were possible, some of them were probable, and yet none of them had occurred. She loved him still, and he, although he had looked on many a fair face, and basked in the sunny smile of beauty, had never for a moment forgotten her faith or lost his devotion to his own dear English girl. Fortune he had enough for both. Death had not even threatened to rob him of the prize of such a noble and faithful heart which he had won. But a horrible superstition had arisen, which seemed to place at once an impassable abyss between them, and to say to him in a voice of thundering denunciation, "'Charles Holland, will you have a vampire for your bride?' The thought was terrific. He paced the gloomy chamber to and fro with rapid strides, until the idea came across his mind that by so doing he might not only be proclaiming to his kind entertainers how much he would, was mentally distracted, but he likewise might be seriously distracting them. The moment this occurred to him he sat down, and was profoundly still for some time. He then glanced at the light which had been given to him, and found himself almost unconsciously engaged in a mental calculation as to how long it would last him in the night. Half ashamed, then, of such terrors as such considerations would seem to indicate he was on the point of hastily extinguishing it, when he happened to cast his eyes on the now mysterious and highly interesting portrait in the panel. The picture as a picture, was well done. Whether it was a correct likeness or not, 
of that party whom it represented. It was one of those kinds of portraits that seem so lifelike that, as you look at them, they seem to return your gaze fully, and even follow you with their eyes from place to place. By candlelight, such an effect is more likely to become striking and remarkable than by daylight, and now, as Charles Holland shaded his eyes from the light, so as to cast its full radiance upon the portrait, he felt wonderfully interested in its lifelike appearance. Here is true skill, he said, such as I have not before seen. How strangely this likeness of a man, who I never saw, seems to gaze upon me. Unconsciously, too, he aided the effect, which he had justly enough called lifelike, by a slight movement of the candle, such as any one not blessed with nerves of iron would be sure to make, and such a movement made the face look as if it was inspired with vitality. Charles remained looking at the portrait for a considerable period of time. He found a kind of fascination in it which prevented him from drawing his eyes away from it. It was not fear which induced him to continue gazing on it, but the circumstance that it was a likeness of the man who, after death, was supposed to have borrowed so new and so hideous an existence, combined with its artistic merits, chained him to the spot. I shall now, he said, know that face again. Let me see it where I may, or under what circumstances I may. Every feature is now indelibly fixed upon my memory. I can never mistake it. He turned aside as he uttered these words, and, as he did so, his eyes fell upon a part of the ornamental frame which composed the edge of the panel, and which seemed to him to be a different color from the surrounding portion. Curiosity and increased interest prompted him at once to make a closer inquiry into the matter, and by a careful and diligent scrutiny he was almost induced to come to the positive opinion that at no very distant period in time past the portrait had been removed from the place it occupied. When once this idea, even vague and indistinct as it was, in consequence of the slight grounds he had formed it on, had got possession of his mind, he felt most anxious to prove its verification or its fallacy. He held the candle in a variety of situations, so that its light fell in different ways on the picture, and the more he examined it, the more he felt convinced that it must have been moved lately. It would appear as if, in its removal, a piece of the old oaken carved framework of the panel had been accidentally broken off, which caused the new look of the fracture, and that this accident, from the nature of the broken bit of framing, could have occurred in any other way than from an actual or attempted removal of the picture, he felt was extremely unlikely. He set down the candle on a chair near at hand, and tried if the panel was fast in its place. Upon the very first touch, he felt convinced it was not so, and thus it was easily moved. How to get it out, though, presented a difficulty, and to get it out was tempting. Who knows, he said to himself, what may be behind it. This is an old baronial sort of hall, and the great portion of it was, no doubt built at a time, when the construction of such places as hidden chambers and intricate staircases were, 
in all buildings of importance, considered desiderata. That he should make some discovery behind the portrait now became an idea that possessed him strongly, although he certainly had no definite grounds for really supposing that he should do so. Perhaps the wish was more father to the thought than he, in the partial state of excitement he was in, really imagined, but so it was. He felt convinced that he should not be satisfied until he had removed the panel from the wall and seen what was immediately behind it. After the panel containing the picture had been placed where it was, it appeared that pieces of molding had been inserted all around, which had the effect of keeping it in its place, and it was a fracture of one of these pieces which had first called Charles Holland's attention to the probability of the picture having been removed. That he should have to get two, at least of the pieces of molding, away before he could hope to remove the picture was to him quite apparent, and he was considering how he should accomplish such a result when he was suddenly startled by a knock at his chamber door. Until that sudden demand for admission at his door came, he scarcely knew to what a nervous state he had worked himself up. It was an odd sort of tap, one only, a single tap, as if one demanded admittance and wished to awaken his attention with the least possible chance of disturbing any one else. "'Come in,' said Charles, for he knew he had not fastened his door. "'Come in.' There was no reply, but after a moment's pause, the same sort of low tap came again. Again he cried, "'Come in!' But whoever it was seemed determined that the door should be opened for him, and no movement was made from the outside. A third time the tap came, and Charles was very close to the door when he heard it, for with a noiseless step he had approached it, intending to open it. The instant this third mysterious demand for admission came, he did open it wide. There was no one there. In an instant he crossed the threshold into the corridor, which ran right and left. A window at one end of it now set in the moon's rays, so that it was tolerably light, but he could see no one. Indeed, to look for any one, he felt sure was needless, for he had opened his chamber door almost simultaneously with the last knock for admission. It is strange, he said, as he lingered on the threshold of his room door for some moments, my imagination could not so completely deceive me. There was most certainly a demand for admission. Slowly, then, he returned to his room again and closed the door behind him. One thing is evident, he said, that I am in this apartment, and to be subjected to these annoyances, I shall get no rest, which will soon exhaust me. This thought was a very provoking one, and the more he thought that he should ultimately find necessity for giving up that chamber he had himself asked as a special favor to be allowed to occupy, the more vexed he became to think what construction might be put upon his conduct for so doing. They will fancy me a coward, he thought, and that I dare not sleep here. They may not, of course, say so, but they will think that my appearing so bold was one of those acts of bravado which I have not courage to carry fairly out. Taking this view of the matter was just the way to enlist a young man's pride in staying, under all circumstances, where he was, and, with a slight accession of color which, 
even though he was alone, would visit his cheeks, Charles Holland said aloud, I will remain the occupant of this room, come what may, happen what may. No terrors real or unsubstantial shall drive me from it. I will brave them all, and remain here to brave them. Tap came the knock at the door again, and now, with more an air of vexation than fear, Charles turned again towards it, and listened. Tap in another minute again succeeded, and, most annoyed, he walked close to the door, and laid his hand upon the lock, ready to open it at the precise moment of another demand for admission being made. He had not to wait long. In about half a minute it came again, and simultaneously with the sound the door flew open. There was no one to be seen, but, as he opened the door, he heard a strange sound in the corridor, a sound which scarcely could be called a groan, and scarcely a sigh, but seemed a compound of both, having the agony of the one combined with the sadness of the other. From what direction it came he could not, at the moment, decide, but he called out, Who's there? Who's there? The echo of his own voice alone answered him for a few moments, and then he heard a door open, and a voice, which he knew to be Henry's, cried, What is it? Who speaks? Henry, said Charles, Yes, yes, yes. I fear I have disturbed you. You have been disturbed yourself, or you would not have done so. I shall be with you in a moment. Henry closed his door before Charles Hollins could tell him not to come to him, as he intended to do so, for he felt ashamed to have, in a manner of speaking, summoned assistance for tr so trifling a cause of alarm as to which he had been subjected. However, he could not go to Henry's chamber to forbid him from coming to his, and more vexed than before, he retired to his room again to await his coming. He left the door open now so that Henry Bannersworth, when he had got on some articles of dress, walked in at once, saying, What has happened, Charles? A mere trifle, Henry, concerning which I am ashamed you have been at all disturbed. Never mind that. I was wakeful. Did you hear me open my door? I heard a door open, which kept me listening, but I could not decide which door it was till I heard your voice in the corridor. Well, it was this door and I opened it twice in consequence of the repeated taps for admission that came to it. Someone had been knocking at it, and when I go to it, lo, I can see nobody. Indeed, such is the case. You surprise me. I am very sorry to have disturbed you, because upon such a ground I do not feel that I have ought to have done so, and when I called out in the corridor, I assure you it was with no such intention." Do not regret it for a moment, said Henry. You were quite justified in making an alarm on such an occasion. It's strange enough, but still it may arise from some accidental cause, admitting, if we did but know it, of some ready enough explanation. It may certainly, but after what has happened already, we may well suppose a mysterious connection between any unusual sight or sound and the fearful ones we have already seen. Certainly we may. How earnestly that strange portrait seems to look upon us, Charles. It does, and I have been examining it carefully. It seems to have been removed lately. Removed? Yes, 
I think, as far as I can judge, that it has been taken from its frame. I mean that the panel on which it is painted has been taken out. Indeed, if you touch it, you will find it loose, and, upon a close examination, you will perceive that a piece of the molding which holds it in its place has been chipped off, which is done in such a place what I think it could only have arisen during the removal of the picture. You must be mistaken. I cannot, of course, take upon myself, Henry, to say precisely such is the case, said Charles. But there is no one here to do so. That I cannot say. Will you permit me and assist me to remove it? I have a great curiosity to know what is behind it. If you have, I certainly will do so. We thought of taking it away altogether, but when Flora left this room the idea was given up as useful. Remain here a few moments, and I will endeavor to find something which will assist us in its removal. Henry left the mysterious chamber in order to search in his own for some means of removing the framework of the picture, so that the panel would slip easily out, and while he was gone, Charles Holland continued gazing upon it with greater interest, if possible, than before. In a few minutes, Henry returned, and although what he had succeeded in finding were very inefficient implements for the purpose, yet with this aid the two young men set about the task. It is said, and said truly enough, that where there is a will there is a way, and although the young men had no tools at all adapted for the purpose, they did succeed in removing the molding from the sides of the panel, and then, by a little tapping at one end of it, and using a knife as a lever at the other end of the panel, they got it fairly out. Disappointment was all they got for their pains. On the other side there was nothing but a rough, wooded wall, against which the finer and more nicely finished oak paneling of the chamber rested. "'There is no mystery here,' said Henry. "'None whatever,' said Charles, as he tapped the wall with his knuckles, and found all hard and sound. "'We are foiled.' We are indeed. I had a strange presentiment now, added Charles, that we should make some discovery that would repay us for our trouble. It appears, however, that such is not to be the case, for you see nothing presents itself to us but the most ordinary appearances. I perceive as much, and the panel itself, although of more ordinary thickness, is, after all, but a bit of plain oak and apparently fashioned for no other object than to paint the portrait on. True. Shall we replace it? Charles reluctantly assented, and the picture was replaced in its original position. We say Charles reluctantly assented, because, although he had now had ocular demonstration that there was really nothing behind the panel but the ordinary woodwork, which might have been expected from the construction of the old house, but he could not, even with such a fact staring him in the face, get rid entirely of the feeling that had come across him to the effect that the picture had some mystery or another. "'You are not yet satisfied,' said Henry, as he observed the doubtful look of Charles Holland's face. "'My dear friend,' said Charles, "'I will not deceive you. I am much disappointed that we have made no discovery behind that picture.' "'Heaven knows we have mysteries enough in our family,' said Henry. Even as he spoke, 
they were both startled by a strange clattering noise at the window which was accompanied by a shrill odd kind of shriek which sounded fearful and preternatural on the night air what is that said charles god only knows said henry the two young men naturally turned their earnest gaze in the direction of the window which we have before remarked was one unprovided with shutters and there to their intense surprise they saw slowly rising up from the lower part of it what appeared to be a human form henry would have dashed forward but charles restrained him and drawing quickly from his case a large holster pistol he levelled it carefully at the figure saying in a whisper henry if i don't hit it i will consent to forfeit my head he pulled the trigger a loud report followed the room was filled with smoke and then all was still a circumstance however had occurred as a consequence of the concussion of the air produced by the discharge of the pistol which neither of the young men had for the moment calculated upon and that was the putting out of the only light they there had in spite of this circumstance charles the moment he had discharged the pistol dropped it and sprung forward to the window but here he was perplexed for he could not find the old-fashioned intricate fastening which held it shut and he had to call to henry henry for god's sake open the window for me henry the fastening of the window is known to you but not to me open it for me thus called upon henry sprung forward and by this time the report of the pistol had effectually alarmed the whole household the flashing of lights from the corridor came into the room and in another minute just as henry succeeded in getting the window wide open and charles holland had made his way on to the balcony both george bannerworth and mr marshdale entered the chamber eager to know what had occurred to their eager questions henry replied ask me not now and then calling to charles he said remain where you are charles while i run down to the garden immediately beneath the balcony yes yes said charles henry made prodigious haste and was in the garden immediately below the bay window in a wonderfully short space of time he spoke to charles saying will you now descend i can see nothing here but we will both make a search george and mr marchdale were both now in the balcony and they would have descended likewise but henry said do not all leave the house god only knows now situated as we are what might happen i will remain then said george i have been sitting up to-night as guard and therefore may as well continue to do so marchdale and charles holland clambered over the balcony and easily from its insignificant height dropped into the garden the night was beautiful and profoundly still there was not a breath of air sufficient to stir a leaf on a tree and the very flame of the candle which charles had left burning in the balcony burnt clearly and steadily being perfectly unruffled by any wind it cast a sufficient light close to the window to make everything very plainly visible and it was evident at a glance that no object was there although had that figure which charles had shot at and no doubt hit been flesh and blood it must have dropped immediately below as they looked up for a moment after a cursory examination of the ground charles exclaimed look at the window 
As the light is now situated, you can see the hole made in one of the panes of the glass by the passage of the bullet from my pistol. They did look, and there, the clear round hole, without any starring, which a bullet discharged close to a pane of glass will make in it, was clearly and plainly discernible. You must have hit him, said Henry. One would think so, said Charles, for that was the exact place where the figure was. And there is nothing there, added Marchdale. What can we think of these events? What resource has the mind against the most dreadful suppositions concerning them? Charles and Henry were both silent. In truth, they knew not what to think, and the words uttered by Marchdale were too strikingly true to dispute for a moment. They were lost in wonder. Human means against such an appearance as we saw to-night, said Charles, are evidently useless. My dear young friend, said Marchdale with much emotion as he grasped Henry Bannersworth's hand, and the tears stood in his eyes as he did so. My dear young friend, these constant alarms will kill you. They will drive you and all whose happiness you hold dear distracted. You must control these dreadful feelings, and there is but one chance that I can see of getting the better of these. What is that? By leaving this place forever. Alas! Am I to be driven from the home of my ancestors from such a cause as this? And whither am I to fly? Where are we to find a refuge? To leave here will be at once to break up the establishment which is now held together, certainly upon the sufferance of creditors, but still to their advantage, inasmuch as I am doing what no one else would do, namely, paying away to within the scantiest pittance the whole proceeds of the estate which spreads around me. Heed nothing but an escape from such horrors as seems to be accumulating now around you. If I were sure that such a removal would bring with it such a corresponding advantage, I might, indeed, be induced to risk all to accomplish it. As regards poor dear Flora, said Mr. Marchdale, I know not what to say or what to think. She has been attacked by a vampire, and after this mortal life shall have ended, it is dreadful to think that there may be a possibility that she, with all her beauty, all her excellence and purity of mind, and all those virtues and qualities which should make her the beloved of all, and which do, indeed, attach all hearts toward her, should become one of that dreadful tribe of beings who cling to existence by feeding in the most dreadful manner upon the life-blood of others. Oh, it is dreadful to contemplate! Too horrible! Too horrible! Then wherefore speak of it? said Charles with some asperity. Now, by the great God of heaven, who sees all our hearts, I will not give in to such a horrible doctrine. I will not believe it, and were death itself my portion for my want of faith, I would this moment die in my disbelief of anything so truly fearful. Oh, my young friend, added Marchdale, if anything could add to the pangs which all who love and admire and respect Flora Bannerworth must feel at the unhappy condition in which she is placed. It would be the noble nature of you, who, under happier auspices, would have been her guide through life, and the happy partner of her destiny. As I will be still. May heaven forbid it. We are now among ourselves, and can talk freely upon such a subject. 
Mr. Charles Hollins, if you wed, you would look forward to being blessed with children, those sweet ties which bind the sternest of hearts to life with so exquisite a bondage. Oh, fancy then, for a moment, the mother of your babes coming at the still hour of midnight to drain from their veins the very life-blood she gave to them, to drive you and them mad with the expected horror of such visitations, to make your nights hideous, your days, but so many hours of melancholy retrospection. Oh, you know not the world of terror, on the awful brink of which you stand when you talk of making Flora Bannerworth a wife. Peace, oh, peace, said Henry. Nay, I know my words are unwelcome, continued Mr. Marchdale. It happens, unfortunately, for human nature, that truth and some of our best and holiest feelings are too often at variance and holds a sad contest. I will hear no more of this, cried Charles Hollins. I will hear no more. I have done, said Mr. Marchdale, and twere well you had not begun. Nay, say not so. I have but done what I considered a solemn duty. Under that assumption of doing duty, a solemn duty, heedless of the feelings and the opinions of others, said Charles sarcastically, more mischief is produced, more heart-burnings and anxieties caused, than by any other two causes of such mischievous results combined. I wish to hear no more of this. Do not be angered with Mr. Marchdale, Charles, said Henry. He can have no motive but our welfare in what he said. We should not condemn the speaker, because his words may not sound pleasant to our ears. By heaven, said Charles with animation, I meant not to be a liberal, but I will not, because I cannot see a man's motives for active interference in the affairs of others, always be ready, merely on account of such ignorance, to jump to a conclusion that they must be estimable. "'Tomorrow I leave this house,' said Marchdale. "'Leave us!' exclaimed Henry. "'Aye, forever.' "'Nay, now, Mr. Marchdale, is this generous? "'Am I treated generously by one who is your own guest, "'and towards whom I was willing to hold out "'that honest right hand of friendship?' "'Henry turned to Charles Holland, saying, "'Charles, I know your generous nature. "'Say you meant no offence to my mother's old friend.' If to say I meant no offense, said Charles, is to say I meant no insult, I say it freely. Enough, cried Marchdale, I am satisfied. But do not, added Charles, draw me any more such pictures as the one you have already presented to my imagination, I beg of you. From the storehouse of my own fancy, I say I will not allow this monstrous superstition to tread me down like the tread of a giant on a broken reed. I will contend against it while I have life to do so. Bravely spoken, and when I desert Flora Bannerworth, may heaven from that moment desert me. Charles! cried Henry with emotion. Dear Charles, my more than friend, brother of my heart, noble Charles! Nay, Henry, I am not entitled to your praises. I were base indeed to be other than that which I purposed to be. Come weal or woe, come what may, I am the affianced husband of your sister, and she, and only she, can break asunder the ties that bind me to her. End 
of chapter 12. Reading by Belinda Brown of Indianapolis, Indiana.